0: Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at how to become balanced financially. Now, Grant normally sits a little closer to the front, but the danger was getting in too much, so he's moved back a little bit today. And I've been using this good old broom, which my wife will get back this week, to illustrate the principles of physical balance. And on one finger, if I want to balance this, if I actually want to balance this, I have got to have a con- be looking at a constant reference point. If I take my eyes off that reference point for basically a few seconds, and look at you, that's the end of that. And the constant reference point I talked to you about and shared with you and we looked at for a while was you need to be knowing where your money is. You need to be knowing where your money is going. And to do that, you actually need, I encouraged you, to have a system. A system to manage and to measure where your money is going. If you don't have one of those, you're kidding yourself. Because as every business manager knows here, you cannot manage what you cannot measure. That is a principle that should be firmly embedded in your heads and in your kids' heads. You cannot manage what you cannot measure. So, we said... Where would my store go? Go back here. We said that we need to have... A system to measure. Now, if you just do it with pen and paper, that's absolutely fine. I have to use a computer these days to do that. But anyway, what we said is you need to track. Now, if you are married, or if you are engaged, you're about to get engaged. If you do this, this will save you a lot of arguments. Because it's clear, and everybody knows what's going on. So, I'm going to skip from the first to the third law that we talked I'm going to miss the middle one for a minute. And I said, the third law of physical balance is I need to have a clear objective. And my objective when I was doing that was to keep the pole vertical, right? That was my objective, to do that. And what we said in that week when we looked at this law was you and I need to be able to answer these questions. Why am I even managing money? I mean... Why do I have money in the first place? What's the point? What is the point? So I need a clear objective. And when we try, I challenged you to come up with a one, or two, actually two-word summary that governs all of your financial management. Two words. And I said to you, what is it? What would your statement for be? Why am I doing this? Is it just to, when I manage money, is it just to spend all I can? Is it just to save all I can? Should that be my objective? Is it just to give all I can? Should that be my objective? Or is it to just take care of my family? Is that it? Is that the point? What is the objective? What is the overarching purpose of managing the money that God has lent me? And what we did that week, if you remember, is we looked at both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we discovered that if today you are a believer in God, if you are, we saw that the scriptures clearly clearly teach that we are to honor God with our finances, with all of it. Not just a a little stingy percentage, but whatever we do, we are to honor God. God, we did that. We looked at that. And we need to ask the question, we've noticed, how do I honour God with my stuff? With my house. How do I do that? How do I honour God with my car? How do I honour God with my second house? Or my second car? Or whatever other assets? With my stuff. And we looked at that. And you, can, if you missed that session, you can go onto the website. And as Grant said, download it from... If you've got an iPhone, perish the thought. But if you do, like um, you can do it through iTunes or you can do it through SoundCloud if you have none of those things okay now I want to whip back now to the middle principle and the middle principle of balance clear um, you need to focus On your objective, you need to have a clear objective. And then the third thing you need to do to keep this thing in balance is you always need to be making constant adjustments to make sure you are staying balanced. This is the thing. And then we started to look at some of these things that you have to make as constant corrections. The first week we looked at consumer debt. And the whole idea that day was less debt, remember, More savings. In other words, save more and charge less. That's what we tried to portray that day. Why did we say that? We said that because the Bible clearly says that the borrower becomes the lender's what? Slave. Why would you willingly put yourself into slavery? And we do that. We purchase ourselves into slavery where we can't do what we want to do because we are a slave to somebody else. And that taskmaster tells us what we will do. When you will get up, what you will do. Where you can go. No, no, you can't do that. You have to do this. You owe me first. Now last week we looked at the second correction. And that was what do we do with our extra? Our extra money. And we saw from Luke twelve fifteen that my life does not. Consist. My My life does not consist of my possessions and the abundance of my possessions. You can see that in Luke 12, 15. You should look that up and dwell on that and say, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say to me in this? Because I think the world and the culture is cluttered out. The spirit had gone on this issue. And today, I want to talk about another constant correction. And as you saw at the beginning, it's about managing my expenses or spending. And when I want to talk about the dynamic that's in your life and mine that fuels this desire to overspend. It gets people into trouble. And it drives misspending. Maybe it drove you into a lease that you wish you could get out of, but you can't. Maybe it drove you to buy things that you still owe money on, but you don't even really use. Maybe this drove you into credit card debt. Now what that means is if you can't pay your credit card off in full every single month without fail... You are, and you have, credit card debt. That is extremely dangerous debt. We talked about that. Actually, this fuel, this dynamic, actually, this is interesting, it actually fuels a lot of our economy. And you know what that fuel is? It's the word discontent. Discontent. What is that? It's the dissatisfaction I have with what I have or what I don't have. That's discontentment. And the term I would like to associate with discontentment is the word awareness. You may want to write that somewhere. Awareness is what fuels discontent. It fuels your spending. Now, this is how that works. You are happy with what you've got. Until you become aware there's another one, right? You are happy with the house that you live in or you lived in until you visit another neighborhood. And for an extra $200 a month, you can have that. You are happy with the kitchen you had until you visited your friends and you didn't even know they made kitchens like that. And whoa, what a benchtop. I want one. But until you went there, you didn't even know it existed. Unlike past generations, we are bombarded daily TV, radio, the movies, magazines with reminders of what you and I don't have. That's how advertising works. See, advertisers' worst, I know, I have a degree in marketing and computer science. Advertisers' worst nightmares are people who are content. They're trying to stir you up. You're not content. Look, if you have this, you'll get the guy or the girl. You know, if you go in this experience, you'll be relaxed. They're always trying to stir you up because if you're content, you're not going to buy, and that's horrible for them. So, I've noticed something else too. In the past, people replaced things when they broke. Only when they broke. Remember, there was a time when we'd actually repair a toaster. You're not going to believe that, but it's true. We'd repair a kettle element when it blew. Do any of you remember that? (laughs) Not today, it doesn't go down to Briscoe's. Right? Or someplace like that. Or we'd replace something when it was finally lost. Previous generations would ask you and I today, why would you change out something that isn't broken? Today we use a very familiar term from my industry we upgrade. It describes our consumer mentality. We don't wait for things to break. Or wear out. We just upgrade them. Whilst they're still working. Anybody ever done that? Anybody? Now this can lead to cons- more consumer debt, credit card debt that wasn't actually fueled by need. Because last time I checked, everybody here is living and eating indoors, and your children are living and eating indoors. This can lead to tension in your relationships. And it was all fueled when I became aware of something and I then became dissatisfied with what I had and discontented. And I just had to get that new phone. So we're fine. Until we're aware of what we don't have. Now here's the twist. The truth about discontentment and stuff. Your desire for bigger, for better, for faster, for cooler, for more newer, for more fashionable, and I understand that because I live in the same world with you. That desire, I want to put a label on it for you to consider. That word, that's an appetite. It's an appetite. And I've observed in my few short years on Terra Firma, Appetites are never fully or finally satisfied. Do you ever go and, you know, you're kind of hungry, right? Do you ever have a meal and go, well, I am now fully and finally satisfied? <laughs> no, nope, I'll never eat again. <laughs> appetites don't work like that. You feel satisfied, or well, if it's like me, for a time. In fact, there are times I go, oh, I couldn't face a thought of not another morsel. Anybody ever been there? <sighs> oh, no, thanks. nothing more repulsive. But something strange happens after I sleep. I wake up and I'm hungry again. What happened? Huh? Your desire for stuff, your appetite for stuff is like, your appetite for stuff is like an appetite. For houses, your appetite for cars, your appetite for progress, for advancement, for more money, for all this stuff is an appetite, isn't this what I'm trying to say, will never be fully and finally satisfied. It won't, because it's an appetite. For example, let's reflect a little bit on your own experience, if it's anything like mine. Do you ever remember saying to yourself, well, this is the last computer I will ever need? Because you finally got the one you wanted. Fast, lots of storage. You know, Or this is the last house. Or maybe the last car. Or I will wear this forever. Yeah, But it's not, is it? You don't. You go on to the next thing. It fades. Now it would seem that the way you satisfy an appetite... Is feeding it? But the truth is, the more you feed an appetite, the more it grows. And the bigger it gets. Appetites that are fed grow. The more you get, the more you want. More stuff does not reduce discontentment. That's the correlation. And we live in a culture that says, feed the appetite. You've got an appetite? Just satisfy it, man. And it holds out a false promise that the Bible talks about. That if you feed it, then you'll be fully and finally satisfied. That statement is flat out false. So let's put the logic on the table there. The truth is, you control an appetite by depriving it. You control it by depriving it. That's the truth. Now with all that in mind, I want you to turn to First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Incredibly powerful scriptures. And whilst you're getting there, I want to give you a bit of context. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, his beloved disciple, First Timothy 6. A young man that he's mentored, and he actually wrote two letters to Timothy, First Timothy and... Novelly named Second Timothy. Two letters. Alright. Now he's addressing the issue, the context here, First Timothy six, of wealth, those who want to get wealthy, wealthy people. And in that context, he discusses the issue of contentment. Now while you're finding first Timothy six, I want to suggest to you this discontentment. Is is in many of our experiences a negative thing? Most of us, it's a negative thing. Discontentment has driven us to purchase things we shouldn't have purchased. But I want to point the other side. Discontentment can sometimes actually be leveraged for great good. Great good, good things. For example, many people have made very positive changes because they became very discontented with the way things they were in their marriage. People have made very good changes when they decided, I'm sick and tired of being so unfit and out of shape. But sometimes you've got to come to that stage where you're really sick of it. And that discontentment, you can have, what I'm going to suggest to you is you can have a holy discontentment that will stir you up from where you are to move you forward towards what God wants. Maybe you said, I'm not living that way anymore. I'm discontented with my lack of progress. I'm going to change me. You may have done that in your job. And here's what I would hope would happen today as a result of this message. Wouldn't it be great if we could just for a moment glimpse, catch a glimpse to see clearly enough to become disillusioned? Which the dictionary defines as having lost trust in something, disappointed that something is not as good or as valuable as it would seem. I hope that is the case for us today by the time we're finished in the next few minutes. I want us today, by the Spirit of God's power, to become more and more disillusioned with stuff and the allure of that. So that we all say we will not be driven to make bad financial decisions just because of stuff we don't have. My hope is that we'll become more discontent and dissatisfied with a constant push for more. That drives us ultimately to bigger and better, what we think, until the next bigger and better comes out, or smaller, whatever it may be. And that discontent, hopefully, is my hope, will end up setting you free to serve your true master, not the false master. Now, with First Timothy 6, you should have all found it by now. We're going to jump right into the middle of a conversation. So be careful when you jump into the middle of a conversation, but I'll help you here to set it up. We're jumping into the conversation, and there are two concepts in this verse that you have heard before. And if you're not a Christian, by the way, you may have said, I've heard that before. You have, and this is where it came from, the Bible, 2,000 years ago, 1 Timothy 6. Here we go, verse 6. The Bible says this, But godliness... With contentment, there's our word, is great gain. Great gain. Now Paul is presenting this as a smack in the face to the false teachers of his day. Who taught that godliness was a means to financial gain. Instead, he says here, listen up. He says, godliness is great gain in itself if it's accomplished uh, excuse me accompanied by contentment godliness doesn't come and go with the uncertainties of wealth godliness with contentment is wealth that is independent of one's bank balance property portfolios or stock portfolios or inheritance Completely independent, he's saying here, and possessions. Paul is actually redefining this, is really important, guys. Business guys, pay attention. He is redefining what great gain actually means. It's not like, well, my Kiwi, my Kiwi saver, so fat I could live to 120. He's not saying that. And my investments in land and houses are so much that I can provide for generations and generations. It's not like, well, great gain is a bigger car or a bigger house. He's not saying that. Paul is saying here, great gain in this life is godliness, which means a surrendering of your life to God and becoming what God wants you to be. It's doing what God wants you to do. That's godliness. So he's saying godliness combined with contentment. The quality here is a character quality, meaning primary meaning is the sufficiency in Christ. Is your sufficiency in Christ or material wealth? That's what he's driving it here, which is missed often. It is not sufficiency in self, he's saying here. Well, I'm fine with what I got. Well, that's good, but he's saying, ah, the big point here is, is your sufficiency in Christ? Because he's saying, all other things I've had before are like trash, another, another verse he says. So Paul says great gain is more than stuff. That's important to remember that. This definition he's getting after here. Great gain is godliness combined with contentment and real gain is not related to things. Here's why that makes sense. If great gain is only about enriching me and myself and yourself with stuff, That means when we die, we leave it all here. There is zero gain. Zero. In other words, earthly profits, you made a good profit last year. Good, that's fantastic. But you know what? That's all getting left behind. All of it. On the other hand, what brings great gain, as we're about to see, has to do with eternal values. He's very sharply contrasting this compared to the false teachers of his day. When material treasures become our focus, we quit contributing to our eternal accounts. You may want to remember that. When material treasures become our focus, we quit contributing to our eternal accounts. Verse 7, next verse. Now, whenever, by the way, just a point, whenever you see the word for at the beginning of a verse, it means it's going to explain something that came before, okay? So, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Just so we're clear, zero. I've seen a bunch of babies come into this world and they all come out with zip. They come in with zip. And they, I've seen a bunch of people go out the other end and they all go out with zip. The reason great gain has more to do for you and I with a relationship with God. And it has to do with the contentment with what you have, is because you're gonna leave everything here anyway. Let me put it another way. When you die. When we die, we lose everything. Why? Look at the next verse. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. Here it is. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You can't take nothing with you, he's saying. Nothing. And sometimes we forget that. So he says, I want you, he's about to say this, so he says, knowing this, I want you to rethink the acquisition and the pursuit of stuff. You know what? For those of you who invest in the share market, how many of you would be prepared to invest in a mutual fund that you knew was guaranteed to end up at zero? Just a thought. For those of you shrewd investors, verse 8, here's a challenge. This is a big challenge, so strap your safety belts on for this one. Okay, Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, oh, 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 hold on. When you read that verse, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. There's something in you and something in me that goes, no, we won't. Does that happen to you? When you read that verse? I'm not content just to have enough to eat and wear and a place to sleep. You see, because there's something in me and there's probably something in you that's so much about progress and the next and the bigger, and the next bigger thing and the better thing and keeping up and being aware. And Paul says, I'm going to take it to the extreme to make my point. I've learned this. As long as I have a clear conscience before God, And I'm doing the best I can with my life to serve him and his purposes. I've got enough food, something to wear. I'm fine. That's what he's saying. I'm way more content than the people who have way more stuff and are enslaved for the rest of the earthly sojourn to serving stuff. That's a pretty profound profound thought. So let's just keep going. Verse nine. Stay with me here. Those who want to get rich, you know, get more, get bigger, get better, proliferate stuff, got to move forward. What do they do? The Bible says they fall into temptation and a trap. Now it doesn't matter about you, but a trap you don't see until you're in it and it's got gotcha. you. Everybody here with a credit card balance you can't pay, you fell into that trap. You wanted to live richer. You wanted to drive better. You wanted to eat better, vacation better, dress better. But Paul says if living richer becomes your driving motivator in your life as it relates to finance, eventually you will fall into a trap. Those who want to rich, uh, rich, live richly cannot understand contentment because they can never have Enough. So by refusing to be content, people's desires for money feeds their greeds. And they run around with a scarcity mentality where everything has to be consumed by them now or by them later. And soon, their passion makes wanting more their only value. And he goes on in this verse and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So here's this point, point. I want you to say this with me. Discontentment is dangerous. Would you say that with me? Discontentment is dangerous. Discontentment is dangerous in that if we allow this appetite that's in every one of us sitting in this room to drive us If we allow it and we don't control it, it, we will fall into a trap. Then he says something else, which is often misquoted. Verse 10 For the love of money. Now, if I were to ask you, you know, we had a coffee, one on one, and I were to say, Hey, do you love money? Would say, "Mm -hmm, Well, I like it. I don't think I love it, but I'm probably dating it. (laughs) It is hard to see the love of money in the mirror. Let's carry on. For the love of money... By the way, hold on. Let me backtrack up. Good point to ponder. It is not money. It's the love of it. The insatiable appetite. The more, bigger, better... More off, etc., and keep multiplying. So let me say it in a different way. It's not if you have money, it's if money has you. I'm saying it all the time. It's not if you have money, that's not a point. In fact, many rich people supported the ministry of Jesus, it's if money has you. Let's carry on. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money financial gain have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves ow that sounds painful right with many griefs you know what this point is here if you do not get a handle on discontentment it's dangerous and not only can it wreck your relationship with other people it can ruin your relationship with God walked away from their faith Some of you here today are back in church, and you haven't been to church for a long time. And when you look back and you kind of trace the drift, it had nothing to do with theology, it's because you got choked out by the cares and concerns of this world, and now you're back and you realize there wasn't such a great gain to be had there. And by the way, that was predicted 2,000 years ago in that verse, verse 11. Here's the big contrast. So we've seen that. Now I want to completely swap because Paul does this really brilliantly. Big contrast coming up. Now Paul gives us a preeminent insight into how to work your way out of that, to leverage dissatisfaction for your own benefit, to leverage discontentment for your own benefit, to work your way out of this, to change your awareness and to change your focus here he comes verse 11 but you men of God you men of God flee not flirt flee not flirt flee not be careful oh it won't get me flee Lot's wife sounds about a good rough analogy here flee from all of this what's this? What's this is he talking about? Orienting your life around more, bigger, better. Being in love with more. Chasing the bigger, better, faster. He says, flee one thing. This is cool. Flee one thing, but pursue another. So he's saying, abandon that, follow this. He says, flee one thing, pursue another. Now this, friends, is not natural. This will not come naturally to you. Hence, the command. The command in the scriptures. He says, I want you to change your direction. I want you to change your thinking. I want to cha- you to change your pursuit. Because you're chasing the wrong things. But you, men of God, flee from all of this. Get it? Don't go there. Go here. Verse 11. B. He says, I want you to pursue instead, flee that, but pursue this. Pursue what? Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love and endurance. Oh dear Lord, we need Christians with endurance these days. And gentleness. He says, don't let your life be characterized by that claptrap. Let your life be characterized by godliness and faithfulness and perseverance and love and gentleness. In other words, what if you said, instead of being so dissatisfied with how I live or where I live and my standard of living, I would like to become more discontented, I encourage this, with your lack of knowledge of scripture. God's word. The fact that perhaps I should be more discontented about the fact that I don't have the intimacy with God that I really deep in my heart long for because if I've got that, nothing else matters. The fact that maybe I should be discontent with the fact that I pull my family out of church so I could pursue these things. Maybe I should be more discontented with the fact that I'm not following and seeking God's purposes and his kingdom over mine. Mine are ruling preeminently. This is the contentment with godliness idea here. So contentment is found by redirecting your pursuit. To what? Well, Paul says here, this is the practical application. So you can do this. This is very clear. And it's what I'd like you, he's saying here, Paul is saying, this is what I'd like you to spend your life pursuing. Not that. Junk, which counts for zip. This is what I'd like you to do with your discretionary time and your money. Verse 18. Let's carry on. Skip down a few verses. You can read the whole thing in your own time. Command them, very strong, to do good. And to be rich in good deeds. Hmm. How do I do that? Go volunteer somewhere. Stay away from those places. All that time you spend searching the net, on this, on that, in the mall, sucking up your money and that eventually make you discontent say, I've got to have one of those and further enslave you. Go volunteer. Do something that will count for eternity with that time. It goes on. And be generous and willing to share. In other words, Instead of spending it, give it. Maybe for you, you've figured out for an extra 200 bucks a month, you could drive a whole bunch better set of wheels. Just 200 bucks extra a month, I'll sort that. Look what I can drive. And then God says to you, I've got an idea. Now that you've figured out it's only 200 bucks a month, why don't you give it to somebody who really needs that? That for them, it will provide food, clothing, shelter, education, and medical care for six months. So he's saying there, redirect your, per, uh, your pursuit. Redirect your passion. And become aware of things that you're not aware of because you're not focusing on them. Here's what happens. As your awareness changes, your dissatisfaction and your discontent will change as well. Verse 19. Talking to us. In this way. They will lay up, if you do this, and what was what, that before in verse 18, verse 19, in this way, you do this, you will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation. When the judgment comes, it won't all be burnt up as wood, hay and stubble, know, stubble, but this will be a firm foundation for the coming age. Oh God. Tonight I'm going to California. I'm looking forward to seeing my son. But you know what, even more than that, I'm looking forward to the coming age. That is super exciting. Super exciting. Uber. That pales nothing, what I'm doing today, compared to this. If you do this, lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age, so that they may be. Now this is real clear. Excuse me. So that they may take hold of life that is truly life. This is it. Not the other stuff. This is it, he's saying. He's saying, look, if you just go with the flow of culture and you're going to take hold of something that you think is life and you've been told is life, they sold it as a life, it's not life, they sold you a lie. That's what Paul's telling you, real clear. That's what God is saying through his word, it's a lie. Just as the grains of sand at the end of your life, you'll have gained nothing because you'll leave it all behind. You spend all of your time, all of your energy, all of your money pursuing things that at the end of your life are valueless. But he says, if you will change your pursuit, if you will change some of your habits, the more I give my time and my extra to others, and for God's eternal purposes, the more content I'll become with what I have. And the less disturbed I will be about what I don't have. That they may take hold of life that is truly life. That is great gain. Great gain that goes beyond life. Now as we wrap this up, a few questions and a few takeaways. So please write your own notes according to how you feel, you're impressed on what to do. A few questions first. What creates material discontent in you? Is it the sight of camera catalogs? Oh, man, I've got to have that latest one. That new EOS, whatever it's called, blah, 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 blah. Is it gadgets for you? Every time you get a moment, you're at PB Technology, scanning the horizon. Or is it Bunnings, New Tools, whatever it may be? Is it the mall? Just browsing, just having a coffee, and oh, I like that. <laughs> is it magazines that come to your door and invite you to stir your discontent? So what is it that creates material discontent in you? Some interesting questions to think about. Two, what can you do to be less aware of things that fuel your sense of discontentment Maybe it's cancel a subscription that stirs you. Maybe it's staying out of the dealerships or the malls or the stores or the deal, whatever it may be. Three, what could you do this week to become, now this is important, more aware of what somebody else doesn't have to the point it bothers you. Now that's when you're getting close to the nerve. When it starts to bother you, really bother you that somebody else doesn't have this. The basics. Four, this is a good one to ponder on maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning as you do your devotions. What should you be more discontented with in your own life? How about your spiritual life? Are you happy with it? Is it growing as much as you would like it to be? What if you? What, what about some of those things that he mentioned there? That you should pursue? Are you happy with your pursuit of the things he says? Paul says you should pursue. How do you find that? If you had to rate yourself, friends, discontentment is dangerous and it'll get you imbalanced. Constant correction requires intentional moves in another direction. I have to move that constantly to keep myself in balance. Constantly, I have to do that. Now, if you walk out of here today and go, well, that was an interesting sermon, Pastor Ian. And you just go in your life, with your life, and you don't make any changes. You know what? This culture isn't going to let you leave you alone. It's not going to back off. It's going to pursue you. What would you be willing to do to shift your awareness, which will shift the element of discontent in your life? As you change you at that pursuit, something will happen in your heart. Would you be willing, what would you be willing to do to get free? Would you finally end up saying, I am so fed up with my consumerism, my own consumerism, that you decide to do something differently? This is a game changer. It impacts every single element of your financial world. And friends, discontentment is dangerous. And you can avoid that trap by shifting your focus. Shifting your focus to what God is up to in the world and focusing on what God wants you to do. Because time is short. This is exactly Paul is exactly right. He says, godliness combined with contentment is great gain the only real game. Last takeaways in prayer. First takeaway I want to give you is this discontentment, I wrote this down. Discontentment is bridled when you turn your attention from what you don't have to what others need. You predecide systematically in a disciplined way to turn your attention from what you don't have to what others need need second interesting takeaway your you have a spending plan we talked about this before you have a giving plan your giving plan balances your discontentment because you think i can't spend on that that's absolutely reckless when i think about these people who don't have anything and third and finally when you become more aware of what other people need you become less driven by what you don't have this is a constant correction Correcting our constant pursuit of more. Let's pray. Father, it is a lot easier to talk about this today than to do it. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us courage to do what your Holy Spirit has put his finger on? Give us self control. Would you raise up men and women that are bothered? By the things that bother you, would you soften our hearts? Raise up these men and women, Father, that care far less about the things in this world, the things that this world cares for. Holy Spirit, strengthen our resolve to flee all of this, to pursue righteous living, holiness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. May we honor you as we manage the hours and the resources that you have loaned us. May we be faithful stewards of your grace in the powerful and everlasting name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said Amen. God bless you.